How are you guys doing? It's a holiday weekend. Everybody having fun? Kind of. We're here. We're, we're, we're half asleep. You ever notice like on a holiday weekend, you're like, well, I have an extra day tomorrow, but I'm extra tired today. So it kind of balances itself out on the wrong way, right? I just think that's always funny. Yesterday, I got, uh, we've got, this is like birthday month in the ARP family. And um, me and some people got a chance to belay eight-year-olds for like two and a half hours at a birthday party, which just saying, like, it sounded great when I thought about it, but after the fact, I was like, man, my arm's sore, you know? Like, it's just like, like, this is great. I get to wear my harness, and I'll climb, you don't climb at all. You're just kind of helping making sure nobody dies, you know? That's a good birthday party, by the way. If you want to know what a good birthday party result is, nobody died, you know what I mean? I died, my arm died, but nobody else died, so that's always good, amen, amen. Anyway, my name's Tyler, I'm one of the pastors here, if you're visiting with us, so glad that you're here on this holiday weekend, and we're working through the book of Corinthians, we're getting close to the top of the hill on the downward slide, I know you're like, gosh, it's been a year, it's almost been a year that we've been in Corinthians, although we've taken a few stops, um, and here's the thing. Thank you guys so much for joining us online as well. And last week, as we began chapter 10, we'll finish chapter 10 today as well. But we talked about just idols and idols in the heart. And that's the hard thing, right? Like we all have those things that we hold dear. It's the things that, that, that become our blanket, you know, if you think about Linus and Charlie Brown. But that's the thing. We all have them, and yet God calls us to lay those down. God calls us to lay those idols down. And what he, God wants is he wants to be the idol in our hearts. He doesn't want to have idols before him, if you recognize the language from the Old Testament. And, and last week, we kind of finished with just Paul, uh, Paul encouraging the readers to do all things for the glory of God. Like whether we eat or drink or whatever it is, whether we belay eight-year-olds for two and a half hours. Like you do all things for the glory of God. Those of you that are in classes, you study for all things to the glory of God. Those that are teaching, you do all things for the glory of God. If you're working, you do all things for the glory of God. And that's the beauty of the kingdom that Jesus takes each of us, each of us right where we are and says, you can glorify me right where you are and you don't need anything else but a relationship with Jesus. And I just love that because it takes some pressure off, right? And I know like that's sometimes easy to easy to say from up here, but it's the same for me too. Like it's just the, the pressure that we all want to do well. We all want to honor Jesus to the best of our ability and some days it just doesn't happen that well. And that's what the Corinthian church is at. And so Paul's going to turn his attention now um, to the second half of chapter 10. And as we, uh, we start there, he'll say like, hey, here we go. Um, you guys need to focus your attention on what your freedoms are. And here's the thing, when we sing about love this morning, you know, modern life is so concerned with what love is, agreed? Like, I mean, if you hear about that, that's why marketing exists and all those things, and you think about this thing, like, love is love, and if you love them, you will tell them, or if you love me, let me be me, you hear all those statements, and humans are so preoccupied with love because we live in a fallen world, some in a fallen state looking to love to fill the hole that God, the God-sized hole that we all have. And that only happens through our relationship with Jesus. But this is why marketing exists and relationships exist and money and power to help us all find our place and acceptance. And that's what's so dangerous last week back to the idols is just the, the idols of our own making are always accepting. Agreed? Right? Like they're always, like they're always affirming. They're always saying, yes, you're okay. You're doing well. But that's not what God says you know and God says hey you're, you're you're accepted you're loved you're accepted by my son 
But when we put things before him, he's, you know, he has to let us know those things. And what I love is this, the idea that there's things within the culture, within our world that point to the love that Paul's talking about this morning, but they're not really Christian oriented at all. Who likes Mumford and Sons? Anybody like Mumford and Sons in this room? Am I the only one? Yeah, there you go. We got a couple, right? Like I love Mumford and Sons, right? And I love that, you know, they, they keep changing their sound and whatnot. Well, there's a, a, a song that they had off their last album called Delta. And at the beginning of the song, he talks about if my love is empty uh, vessels, if my love is an empty vessel, I do nothing in this place. Just even then, just how focused the culture is on what love is and how do we give it and how do we receive it. And that's what Paul's talking about this morning as we transition is the theme of the passage is Paul's like, hey, this is essential. This is not essential. Uh, what do you do as a believer, the Corinthians, and then us by, as we're listening and reading this morning, what do we do with the essentials? What do we do with the non-essentials? And then which is the better biblical conversation of what love is? Is it the essential things or the non-essential things? Paul's going to mention conscious several times this passage, which we'll get there in the moment. And if you want a study guide to kind of do a little further deep dive than what we're doing this morning and the time that we have, um, you can grab that on the way out. But I'm going to read over us uh, the second half of chapter 10, starting in verse 23. And so here's the thing. Like, this is a pretty familiar passage. It gets misquoted a lot, but it's still a familiar passage. I just want to read these 10 verses over us this morning. All things, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth after, after he concluded last week. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. You ever heard that before? All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You've, you sometimes hear that quoted in Christian circles. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. There, there's one. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I love this Paul's encouragement there. Everything, whether Mumford and Sons, Belaying Kids, like wherever you are in your station of life, like all of it is because of and for the Lord and the fullness of the Lord there is. If one of, you, if one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner, you are disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but I mean, uh, but his. For why should my liberty, here you go, why should, this is an awesome question for Americans right now. Like, don't underline this in your, in your Bible this morning and come back to it several times this week. So for why my conscience, or excuse me, where there it is. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? That's a kingdom-oriented question. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen? Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, I do not... I do not uh, excuse me, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That they may be saved. And so if you're familiar, in the, in the last couple of weeks, Corinthian church is trying to figure out, hey, how do we be believers and yet participate in the world that we're in? How do I not have idols before God? And what are, what are things that are inbounds and what are things that are out of bounds? That's, what, that's where we are. And so verse 23, just like I said, all things are lawful but not helpful. 
all things are lawful, but don't build up, similar to chapter 6, right? If you remember that, Travis hit that when he had chapter 6, between the lawsuits and believers. And so here's the question. The question behind verse 23 is this, who should be our concern as Christians as we exercise our freedom? Who should be our concern? Because freedom is not meant to be operated in in a vacuum. Not meant to be operated in a vacuum. Now, I know, like, for us as Americans, we're like, well, what do you mean? Hold on a second. I could, you know, like, I don't have to think about other people. I'm free to do as I want and as I choose, which is true. But here's the question. What should be our concern when we operate in our freedom? In, in our freedoms? And the question is, should it just be ourselves? Should it be other Christians? Should it be unbelievers? And so here's the point that Paul's making. If our freedoms do not help ourselves first, other believers and unbelievers get closer to God, we should not exercise them. That's the whole point of this last half of chapter 10. It's Paul saying, hey, freedom is good, but if it gets in the way of something that's better, then should you do it or not? And I know that's a hard question. Like, I'm like, nobody wants to like talk about like, should we do this or should we not do this? But yet Paul is saying to the believers at Corinth, actually, no, you should be thinking that way. You know, we call it other-centered, right? Other-centered. We should be an other-centered people, meaning that we don't just think about ourselves. We will actually put others' needs before our own. Because when we don't, we become barriers to the relationship with God, to ourselves, for other Christians, and for unbelievers. And the reality of it is this Christians should be barriers. We should be barrier removers, we should be barrier removers, and not in such a way like the I-35 um, construction project that's going to go for the next 10 years. Have you seen that? Did you see that recently? Like, they're like, we'll be done in 10 years, and it's like already so much money over budget, and it'll never get completed till Jesus returns, right? Like, have you noticed? Like, that's it. Like, you know, like, if you're, if you're familiar with the Metroplex, like, Jesus is going to return before all the roads are done, you know, because as soon as they get done with one road, what happens? They got to do the road that they started way back at the beginning, right? Like, and here's the thing. They always move the barriers around, and you see where the old lines are, right? And so unintentionally, when we operate in our freedom and we don't think of others, we become that traffic barrier to that lane. When is we should be the people that remove the barriers so that people can freely flow to God. Because if you ask someone, like, what's, what, who's God? What is God? What should we think about God? There's all these lanes of traffic, right? There's all these lanes of traffic. And so, number one, just an, uh, just an observation, the chief end of our exercise of our freedoms, or excuse me, the chief end of the exercise of our freedoms as followers of Christ is to help and build up others, period. Is to help and build up. If that's not your... If that's not what your metric is for, like, I should do this or not do this, and you never stop and ask the question, is this helping in building someone else up, whether it's me or others around me, then we're, I think we're missing the point. We're missing the point because we're not free to be free just for ourselves. Amen? We're actually free. True freedom, true freedom is found is when we give ourselves away for others. Being other-centered is essential exercise of freedom. Being other-centered is essential. Exercise of freedom, excuse me, is non-essential. I said it. I think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, wait a minute. Yes, freedom's great, but it's not essential compared to being other-centered. And I get it because that's a hard thing for us to grasp because you and I have a constitution that grants us inalienable rights, 
that allows us to be free and for the pursuit of happiness. That's the American dream, right? I want the, what is it, you know, when I was in college eons ago, right, it was the, it's the white picket fence and the 2.5 kids. By the way, I don't know how you get 2.5 kids, but that was the average then. Like, most Americans had 2.5 kids. Somehow we have three. Thank you, Lord, but whatever. Um, and once I and had a party yesterday, my arm's still sore, but that's okay. But here's the thing. God's moral code, the, and we talked about this last week as well. God's moral code, how we interact within each other. How we interact with each other. That's God's moral code. How we interact with him personally. That's God's moral code. That's the shape of the cross, right? We've got that vertical relationship here. We've got the horizontal relationships between one another. That's not gone away. And I would say that that actually trumps, I didn't say that on purpose, but it was in my notes. I'm sorry. That actually trumps the Constitution. There you go. But that's hard to grasp, right? Because I, I want to be free. I want to be the person that I could do, but I also want to be helpful as well. But then here we go. That's where the idols come into play, right? Sometimes our own personal freedom becomes an idol before the freedom that God calls us to. There you go. 24. All right, we're doing good, kind of, sort of? Okay. Yep. It's a holiday weekend, so I'm like, ah, we'll just do whatever we would do. Okay. Verse 24. Love this description of the kingdom, by the way, which is not just a mandate for the Corinthians, but Paul has said this also in other letters. Let me just read it again real quick as I find it. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. That's the picture of the New Testament church and kingdom that we populate and are supposed to build. Not just seeking our own good but the good of his neighbor. And Paul says it in other letters as well. He says it in Romans 15 to the church in Rome that he hopes to visit that he never gets to because of his death. He's this longing to go there and instead of going there to build the church, he goes there to die. And he says this, I love this in verse 1 in chapter 15, we who are strong, there you go, strong usually is equated to freedom in the New Testament, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus took the reproach that was meant for you and for me, the stuff that separates us between us and the Father, and took it on himself so that you and I are now free to build the kingdom. That's the point. And why use neighbor? Why does Paul use neighbor there? And it's because Paul is leveling the field. He levels the field. We're all neighbors. We're neighbors in here. We're neighbors with our neighbors. We're neighbors with our kids. We're neighbors with our coworkers. We're neighbors with our friends. We're neighbors with our family. Some of us don't want to be neighbors with our family. You know, I mean, you know how it goes, especially at Thanksgiving where things get kind of weird. You know, that you got your crazy uncle that always does the fun, the, the weird thing, right? But we're all neighbors. And so that's the thing. Paul's leveling the field. Like, we're all responsible for one another. We're all responsible, and as Christians, we have a duty to build and bless all people. Now, I like the term, I usually don't do this, but I like the term sojourner instead of neighbor. I think it applies here. And so sojourner, it's an Old Testament term that was used. And so the nation of Israel had several commandments and laws that said, hey, when you're living your life, don't take all your stuff that I've given you so that you could have, we, we could leave those for the sojourners that are around you. A sojourner just means a newcomer lacking inherited rights. 
That's a sojourner. A sojourner is a newcomer lacking inherited rights. By the way, you were all sojourners at one point. Like before Jesus, you were a newcomer and lacking inherited rights that Christ died and gave you. Christ died and gave you. You know, in the New Testament, when it's read, it usually says, hey, you're no longer a part of this world. Like this idea that this is not your world, you're just in the world, but your heaven is actually your home. That's your land. That's also the same word. And so here's the thing. We never graduate from being a sojourner, whether we know Jesus or not. And so that's the point. Paul is going to use some examples in a moment, but that's the thing. Like we are supposed to help newcomers inherit the rights of the kingdom. That's what it means. That's what it means. To be a good neighbor is to be about your neighbor, not about yourself. You know, and that's hard because, like, a lot of times, like, we as a church get stuck in that rut, right? Like, it's like, wait, we've got to focus here, which is really important, but then also we're supposed to be good neighbors to the community around us. What does that look like? And how do I balance that with just my own needs versus what other needs are? And then Paul is going to talk, like I said, talk about eating meat and participating in meals. So what does it look like when we interact with the world and our neighbors? Like, what, is, what does the word say? Verse 21 says this from last week. He said, Paul wrote, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Back to that idol worship. We can't be a both and people in this regard, but we can be a part of the world. And so... I'm like, okay, Paul keeps hammering this, you know, how, and, and this is what Paul does. Like, he keeps going after the same thing and turns it a little bit and goes after the same thing and then spins it a little bit and goes after the same thing so that he hits everybody. And so I get it, Paul. We can't partake of the Lord and have an idol at the same time. But why is Paul coming back to this? And it's this, the chief end of our existence. Before, the chief end of our exercise of our freedom is to help and build others up. The chief end of our existence is not to avail ourselves of our personal freedoms, but to glorify God with our lives. See that? The chief end of our existence is not to avail ourselves of our freedoms, although we have the freedom to do so. It's to glorify God. And so Paul's saying, actually, that's your plumb line. Like, whether you eat or drink or do whatever you do, glorify God. And so figuring out what you can and cannot do and your walk is important, but not most important. What is most important is to avail yourself of the freedoms that we enjoy, right? We can do that, but if we never make it the main thing, the main thing, which is glorifying God, then we miss the point. That's the non-essential nature of the passage this morning. When we focus on the non-essential things, we never become essential. What is essential is glorifying God, and we can do that whether we enjoy our freedom spiritually or not, Right? There's freedom in laying down power. There's freedom in partaking of power. But that has to be the goal, God's glory, not our own. And if you're like, okay, I believe that, but we often don't expect God to be that way practically, well, hold on a second. Actually, God's practically that way all the time. For God to be God, here you go. So here's some, here's some God theology for you this morning. For God to be God, he has to be concerned with his glory first, or he's a crappy God. It's true. If he's not concerned about his own glory, if he doesn't protect his own glory, if he doesn't put his own glory first, then what kind of God is he? Right? And that's where you see the human condition come to play because like if I'm God and I want to be God and I want the things the way that I want it and I run to the end of myself, there you go. But God has to be concerned with his glory first. 
which means we should always be concerned with his glory first. Practical way to do this then, so before we get to the text, the rest of the text is this. God, how can I glorify you today? Ask that question. Like, start your day that way. If you ever just got up in the morning and say, God, I, I don't know what you've got in store for me, but I want to glorify you today instead of just blindly enjoying the freedom that you've given. You ever approach a holiday weekend that way? Right? No, it isn't the holiday weekend where we punch our card and like, I'm out for like four days and I'll see you in five, right? Or vacation, like that's the thing. But no, actually, we should start every day, no matter it's a holiday weekend or we're on vacation or we're on a Sunday morning or we're at the job or in class saying, God, how can I glorify you today? How can I honor you to the best of my ability as opposed to just enjoying the freedom that you've given me? And so, like I said earlier, Paul's going to focus on consciences for the next several verses. I want to read it again for you. I just want you to note how many times he says the word conscience in verses 25 through 29. So he says this, he goes, okay, so eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. All right, that's one. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to the dinner, this is the Corinth, right? So like Corinth, the church is young, it's new, They've just stepped into the kingdom, but yet they still live in Corinth, which is a wild, crazy culture, not all that dissimilar to ours. And so they're trying to figure out, do I still go eat with that person? Do I go to that party? What do I do? Because I feel like this thing, I have to live for him, but I've still got all this stuff in front of me. So how do I figure that out? And so he says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to the dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one. This is interesting. First two has been about the, the individual, the Christian. But now the third one, I do not, uh, but the someone tells you for the sake of the one who informs you for the sake of the conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but their conscience. Now, see, there you go. You're supposed to be concerned about theirs. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? There you go. How many times was that, conscience? Five-ish. It is five, actually. It's five-ish. Good. Congratulations. We're almost done. But Paul Paul uses conscience five times, and here's how the word is used to make his argument. Conscience, by the way, there's lots of words for conscience. Conscience, but the way that Paul's talking about it, is the faculty or the ability that we all have. By the way, I tell my kids this all the time, and they're like, I don't have a conscience. I'm like, yes, you do. It's just so underdeveloped, you don't even know it's there. You know what I mean? Right, but unfortunately, you ever come across adults that live that way too? You're like, right, especially in movies, you're like, how does that person ever do that? And they're like, they have such an underdeveloped sense of conscience. Conscience is the faculty which we all have, unfortunately, to distinguish between right or wrong. That's what Paul means. The thing that says yes or no that we all have internally wired within us. Another thing if Paul talking about is conscious, just being aware of something. Now, a lot of times, I think that's where most people's consciousness stop. They just stop with the idea of, well, I'm aware that that could be wrong. I'm aware that could be right or that might be helpful or that might build up or it might do something else. But I kind of want what I want, so I'm just going to do what I want. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about actually, no, it's either a yes or a no. This is part of the freedom that I think that the kingdom provides us. The closer we get to Jesus, 
the more black and white things become. In a gray world, fuzzy world that we all live in, especially in Corinth, like it is freedom to say, actually, that's not good. That is good. Agreed? And we all should live that way. We should all live that way. And so the faculty, like I said, distinguish between right or wrong. So to be focused solely on freedoms the way the Corinthians are is only to be aware of the freedom. They're never asking the question, should I or shouldn't I? Because some are, some aren't. And that's what Paul's writing. So here's the thing. But never to engage their conscience of what is right or wrong or what might be helpful for building up is just not healthy. It's not good. And in, in, in counseling speak, they call that poor boundaries. Right? You ever been around someone that has poor boundaries? You're like, well, it's, like, it's just gets kind of gray. Like, it should be this or that. Right? It's poor boundaries. And so verse 25, Paul says, hey, whatever meat you buy in the market. Like, we don't know how our meat shows up. We just know it's there. Thank goodness. Right? Like, there you go. But, like, it's same thing with Corinth. They don't know how it got there. And so some of the market supply of meat, this is contextual, was used in the temple and then got sold. It was offered in the temple and then got sold. And so Paul's like, hey, you don't know. You're free to eat it. Don't worry about the right or wrong. Enjoy your freedom. That's what he means by the first conscience. He's saying, no, enjoy it. It's okay. Because if you don't know, it's okay. So, oh, hold on a second. Does that mean if I don't know, I'm off the hook? Well, not really. We'll get there in just a second, right? Because darn it, you know, that's my kids like, well, if I didn't know, I didn't know. So there you go. Verse 26. For the earth is the fullness of the Lord's, including that potentially spiritually tainted meat that God is providing for you. I mean, God would use something of the world to provide for? Yes, absolutely he does. All is of the Lord and the fullness thereof. Enjoy your freedom. Enjoy your freedom. You're okay. But verse 27, that's right. Thank you. Thank you for that brisket. Anybody, by the way, Brisket or fatty or lean? You're wrong. Anyway, here's what you do. You ask for the lean and then get burnt ends. That's how you do it. But anyway, that's it. There you go. That was not even my notes. That was the Holy Spirit talking. But I digress. The hunger spirit, that is true. Whoa. Is that not? That might be a nine. Anyway, okay. So for the earth, this is the fullness of the Lord. It's a holiday weekend. Like I said, we're on vacation. Spiritually enemy, you're okay. Verse 27, but if an unbeliever invites you to dinner, so here you go. Well, how do I participate with my unbelieving friends and my unbelieving family? If you want to go, don't worry about going. It's better that you go. I think we actually put barriers between us and the world because we can't go because, wait, I'm supposed to be this holy, perfect person, and if I go, somehow I betray God. Paul's actually saying the exact opposite here. It is okay to go. Matter of fact, you should probably go. Do you know why? Because they just, you just were trusted to go and not be judgmental. Imagine that. Imagine if Christians were known as loving, pointing to the truth with grace, but not judgmental. And we walk that tension out. Man, that's hard, right? That seems like a Jesus-inspired kind of goal there. And if they're serving meat and you dig in, you don't know, it's okay, eat it. Unless, and that's where we get to verse 28, unless it gets disclosed that it was offered in sacrifice and that you should not participate because now you know. Now what do we do? And we've all been here, right? We've all been in that situation, that moment like, wait, this thing's getting a little sideways. I'm a little uncomfortable, which is a good sign because that means the Holy Spirit is talking to you. 
What do I do? And sometimes it's okay to continue. Sometimes it's not. But again, here's the thing. If your freedom to continue gets in the way of helping or building someone up, then it's not okay to continue. And that's where it gets a little, a little hairy, right? Because it's like, well, you know, I, I want to have that beer, but maybe I shouldn't have those seven beers, right? That's an exaggeration, but it's true, right? But is it okay to have a beer? I don't know. You're free, right? Is it helpful? I don't know. It may not be. What if they struggle with whatever, right? I mean, that, there's the thing, right? And so, again, if it gets disclosed that it was offered in sacrifice, this is the meat you should not participate because now you know. Because here's the thing. God's grace covers you if you do not know. But if you do know, you're still covered. But now you have an obligation to do what he's asked you to do. See the difference? This is where we check our freedoms at the door and put God's glory first. Put God's glory first. And here's the thing, and this is where it turned, right? It's not for your conscience, although it's in there somewhere in this equation. It's actually for the other person's conscience. It's actually for the other person's conscience. Because remember, last week we talked about idolatry can be present no matter which covenant you live under. Idolatry can be present no matter which covenant you live under. And so Paul asks the question, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Because I'm supposed to be helpful in building others up in the kingdom, which means sometimes Christians cannot participate in things that they might be free otherwise to do. Because it might be confusing to an unbeliever. You ever heard that? Like, before I became a believer, I thought Christians were hypocrites because they would do all the things I would do on the weekends, and then it seemed like they were faking it on a Sunday morning, which I was like, that's dumb, right? Sleep in. But that's where freedoms and too much freedom gets in the way of our own personal witness. That's what we're talking about here, salt and light. What does it look like for you and for me to be salt and light? And so our personal conscience, back to it, is an essential part of salvation because it doesn't just involve us, it also involves the Holy Spirit. It also involves the Holy Spirit. So if you're familiar with Romans at all, if you're familiar with Romans at all, Paul takes the first three chapters of Romans, or the first two and a half chapters technically, and says, all have fallen short, all have turned away, all have fallen short of the glory of God, we all are sinners, familiar with that? I know nobody likes to read Romans, but that's how it starts. And then thank goodness he talks about the gospel pretty quickly. But that's the point. Like none of us can work our way to God. It doesn't matter how we live our life. It doesn't matter how we get all the rights and wrongs right or wrong. It doesn't matter that we are for other people. Like if we are only for other people and never for the glory of God in Jesus, then we're wrong before God. But then Paul says this in Romans 2. He says this in Romans 2. He says this about conscience, starting in verse 15. Talking about, so like, here's the thing. Because the argument is, right, the argument in Romans is, is, well, what if someone's never heard the gospel? What about then? And God said, and Paul says, excuse me, he says, well, actually, no, God's revealed in nature. Well, what if they never catch that, right? What do you do? What happens with people who have never heard the gospel before the Lord? Where do they go? That's what this is. And it has to do with conscience, and it has to do with all of our consciences. And it says this in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. Let me read that again. They show that the work of the law, remember this is the, you've got to do all the things to be holy before God. 
It's written on their hearts while their conscience also bears, remember that thing you should or shouldn't do, bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse. Our consciences, by the way, for the believer in the room, our conscience, by the way, will either accuse or excuse us, but there's hope because we know grace in Jesus Christ. That's the freedom that we are ultimately meant to enjoy. One day we will stand before God and God will say, hey, what about this? What about that? What about that? And we're like, oh, man, you're right. Oh, man, you're right. Oh, that was good. That's okay. And then says, but you know what? You're covered by the blood, so you don't have to live your life that way anymore. You're free. The unbeliever, whether they want to acknowledge a God or not, they'll stand before him one day and they'll go, yeah, yeah, you're right. We, are, we can't escape or even our own conscience. And that's why living by our conscience is so essential. It's so essential. Whether we know the law, we found God revealed in nature or in Christ, our own conscience will reveal where we are in relation to God's holiness on that final day. We can't, and it's not even that. It's like we can't escape ourselves. We try to. You're, you ever had those seasons in your life where you're like, I'm just going to live in such a way, I'm just going to try to get as far away from God as I can. I'm just trying to run like the prodigal son. On the final day, we won't even escape our own conscience. And glory be to God, because he is holy, he is better, and he is gracious and kind and loving and sacrificial in such a way that we don't have to. And so here's the observation. We can't be Christians by just being, I'm going to say this wrong, so you'll have to forgive me. We can't be Christians by just being conscientious. conscientious. We can't just be Christians by being aware we must listen to our own conscience informed by the Holy Spirit because here's the thing. All the time, the Holy Spirit is talking to you and to me at all times. You ever been woken up in the middle of the night and had someone popped in your head? You know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit. You ever like walking through, like you're driving down the road and you think about that person you haven't talked to in a long time? You know who that is? That's the Holy Spirit. You know what you should do? You should send that person a text right then and there because he knows what's going on in their world, and he knows what's going on in your world, and he's making a connection between the two. We can never outrun the Spirit. We can never outrun the Spirit. And all the time he's saying, hey, that's good. I don't know about that one. I know you've been down that road. I know you hate that road. Maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should turn away. Oh, wait, there's that new opportunity. You should go love that person. Go sell everything you can and love that person to a way that it reveals my love for them in a greater detail. And all the time, that's what he's doing. He's saying yes and no and maybe, or it's okay, you're good. But how we hear that voice is the relationship. Do we take the time to develop the relationship? Remember we talked about the greatest idol last week is what? It's that I'm going to be fully on, engaged on a Sunday morning, and I'm going to live in the spiritual wilderness of my week, and then I'll come back home on a Sunday. That's not a relationship, y'all. It's not. And I do it too because life is busy and hard. But he is so worth it and he is better because he is the better God than the God that's in my heart that tells me I'm okay. And so as we close this morning and the band comes back up, I want to turn your attention back to the end of the chapter. Paul says this. He says... So whether you eat or drink, here you go. He's leveled the playing field on what neighbors are, and now Paul's leveling the playing field for the Corinthians and for us as well. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God.
God. And if you do that, if we do all to the glory of God, then we will put ourselves in the right situations because we're actually listening to the Spirit. Because I can raise my hand and I could say Jesus' name and I could sing loudly, but if I'm just doing that out of my own voice and not out of the overflow of the Spirit's voice that's in here that is encouraging me and shaping me and challenging me and pushing me forward, that's idol worship. But instead, speaking out of the overflow of what God has put here where our spirit and our soul and his spirit meet. Do all things for the glory of God. We are to live in such a way to give an offense to no one. And so I get it. Like, it's easily that it's easy for people to be offended these days. I mean, like, don't you just feel like you walk around trying not to offend someone? Or like, can I say this? Or can I not say that? Or can I think this? Or can I not think that? And yet Paul says, what a worthy way for us to live is to live in such a way to not offend anyone, strip all the stuff away from a world that tries to divide us, what would most people who are not a part of a church or know Jesus would say about Christians? What would they say? Are we other-centered or not? Right? Are we for others or are we for ourselves? Now, I get it. There's some contextual things there that dictate some answers. I'm not saying that. But what would they say? But Paul says we are to push the advantage of others, not ourselves. Now that, I think, is a worthy calling. Agreed? And so as we sing, I just want to bring you back to a question that Marcus Mumford asked at the beginning of the song Delta. He said, he started, if my words are empty vessels, I do nothing in this place. Remember that? He asked this at the end of the song. He asked himself, he asked the people listening, he goes, does my love exist for others? Or does my love just make me feel And there it is. That's the kingdom. Does our love exist for others or does our love just make us feel good? Because one, 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 doing it one way only gets you one, but doing it the other gets you both. And that's the beauty that God calls us to. Will you stand and pray with me? God, as we transition now to a response, what a hard call. Does my love exist for others or does my love exist to only make me feel good? And if I'm being honest, it's probably more the latter than the former. But yet I so desperately in my spirit and my soul want to be for the first thing. And God, we can only do that through your grace. And so as we sing, as we think about Paul's words this morning and what it means to be Christians and live in this world to listen to the Spirit in our conscience, Lord, to, to think about others before ourselves. Um, Lord, what a beautiful mess that you've called us into. Not just in ourselves, but in the world. And the world needs a people for you. Because that's the only way that we're going to sort our way through this. Where we are to where you call us to be. And so I pray, Lord, just as one that encourages us to live our lives in such a way that, that helps build up others, that helps others, that points people to you. And I pray, too, that in the process we would lay down the idols that we have. Because as your word says, you, thou shall not have, you shall not have any other gods before me. God, I don't so desperately don't want to be that God, but so often I find myself in that chair. 
And so, Lord, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And as we sing, let us all just take hold of that. No matter where we are, whether things are doing, life is exactly what we want or not. God, you offer grace there. And so if someone needs prayer this morning, God, I pray that they would respond. But if not, Lord, let us sing and glorify your name. And so it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.